Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, grace and peace to you. Um, I think that we can all admit that sharing the gospel is one of the most challenging aspects of our faith, particularly in our times. That's challenging because without fail, it requires us to take risks. It requires us to put ourselves out there, and it requires us to leave the realm of the comfortable and the familiar. And there's also the issue of competence. Will I say the right thing? I don't have all the answers. What if I just botch this whole process? Now, those, of course, are very real fears, but oftentimes they're smaller than they actually seem. One, it's really not so bad talking to someone else about Jesus. We have the Spirit, and it turns out that that's kind of his specialty. That's what he does. And two, as you start to share, you find out that you, um, you actually know more than you think. And you're surprised to find the truth just rolling off of your tongue as you're speaking to someone. However, there is another thing besides those that makes sharing the gospel difficult. Now, it's not something in us, right? Maybe a lack of confidence or a lack of um, competence. Rather, it's something out there in our society and our culture. And you can see this particularly when you talk to older Christians, um, specifically Christians who have been active in sharing the gospel. For, for instance, I don't know how many times I've heard at this point someone say, you know, this new generation, uh, there's no reasoning with them. Or they don't listen to the facts. Or the truth doesn't matter to them. Now, I'm not mocking that because it points to something very real, a massive shift that has happened in our society. And what I want to do this morning is talk about that shift and how it's changed the way that we share the gospel. Now, of course, the message never changes. The gospel is the gospel, but the method does. You can see this pretty clearly in Acts. Paul reasons one way with the Jews when he's in a synagogue, and then he reasons in quite a different way when he's talking to a Gentile audience who doesn't have the same background. So what we're dealing with now is a new audience. And my aim this morning is to give you some tools to help you better share the gospel with them. But first, before we get to any of that, I want to talk about ourselves and the issue of confidence. And I want to begin with the issue of confidence because it's something that needs to be addressed in our time and culture. And I want to reinstill in our church, particularly the younger among us, with a proper confidence in the gospel and its power. Now, why do we want to do that? Well, because it seems there's a crisis of confidence when it comes to evangelism. There was a recent study published not very long ago by uh, Barna, which indicated that 47% of millennials today, that's people from their late 20s to their early 40s, 
this group of people thinks that it's actually wrong to share their faith. Now, not millennials in general, but millennials within the church, that it's wrong to share their faith. About 27% of Generation X, that's mid-40s to late 50s, think the same thing. Now, that's pretty remarkable, however you slice it. About half of my generation are saying that sharing the gospel is not hard or that they don't feel equipped for it, but that it's actually morally wrong, that it's something we shouldn't do. So the question is, how do we get here where Jesus' great commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, has become something immoral, something we actually shouldn't engage in? Well, in our culture, as you know, the highest good is tolerance. That is, accepting and welcoming all viewpoints without passing judgment on them. And the reason we put such a high value on tolerance is because we don't really believe in universal truth. There's no one thing that's true for everyone, that is for all people in all places in all times. Instead, truth as we hold it to be is something local, It's particular to a certain place, to a certain people, and it's not universal. So something may be true for them, but not us. It may be true for him, but not her. Or it may be true for one people, but not another. So there's no sort of capital T truth, only lowercase t truth. And I have my truth, and you have yours. So, for instance, we deny that there's a universal moral standard. There's no right way to live, is what we say. Instead, all lifestyles are equally valid. You know, people can do whatever they want so long as they don't hurt anyone in the process. So a couple can practice polyamory, that is, each spouse having multiple lovers, as long as they agree to it. They're not hurting someone, is what would be said. They're not hurting anyone, someone would say. So who am I to judge? They're adults and they can do what they want. So you see that when there's no such thing as universal truth that is binding upon everyone, tolerance is really important. There's no right way and therefore we have to accept every way. Every religion, every lifestyle, every morality. So rather than imposing this standard... What we need to do is celebrate diversity and the unique paths that people take. And it's how we keep the peace, you know, to each their own. I tolerate you and you tolerate me and my way. Um, I saved an exchange that I found on Facebook a couple years ago because I thought it illustrated this really well. And I was just waiting for the time to share it. So here it is. Someone said, it's okay to believe that something is a sin It's not okay to force the rest of the world to live their lives according to your beliefs. It should not have an effect on anyone else's life besides your own. Religion is and should remain personal. To which someone in the comments replied, This relativism is what's wrong with our generation. People don't want to be told the truth, and I find that really sad. Which in turn garnered this response. Well, that's your truth. You don't get to say there's something wrong with me 
for not believing the same religion as you do. I don't see why it's so hard for people to live their lives the way they want to and move on. So, again, there's multiple truths, yours and mine and his and hers, and our job is not to judge between them, but to tolerate them. And the one thing that you really cannot do in our culture, the sort of one commandment that we have is to be, is not, is, well, how did I, I messed up what I'm trying to say. The one thing you can't do is be intolerant. If you make any moral argument and you say that one option is better than another, or that one lifestyle is closer to the truth than another lifestyle, then at that point you're not playing by the rules. You're not being tolerant of that person's truth. You just want to control them, and you want to impose your own way upon them. Does that make sense to you? Is that more or less kind of how things feel out in the world? Now, do you see how that makes sharing the gospel quite difficult in our day? It breaks all the rules that our society lives by. We proclaim that there is no other name by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. We proclaim that in a society which says all names in all ways are equally valid. And right off the bat, that's offensive. People don't want to be told that. They feel like you're imposing on them. But then we even have the gall to tell people that God wants them to repent and change. And of course, that's crossing the line, right? That's not affirming them. So does it make sense now why 40%, 47% of millennials think that evangelism is wrong? It's not tolerant. It's pushy. It's about controlling people. And it's not about accepting them as they are. Now, given our congregation... I don't think anyone seriously thinks that evangelism is wrong. However, that doesn't mean that we're not intimidated by this. It's hard to share the good news when it appears to everyone, uh, not less the person you're sharing, not least the person you're sharing with, that you're some sort of religious fanatic trying to control people. And the fear of appearing that way of being the bad guy, can lead us to shrink away from evangelism. It can take away the confidence in the gospel, the confidence we have in what we bring to the world. So what can we say to this? I want to say a few things, but first I just want to say that we have to be okay with being the bad guys for a while. Now, Jesus said this would be the case. John 15, 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, it's surprising to us that people would not want to hear this message or that we would find ourselves on the outside looking in because the church has occupied a privileged place in our society. But those days are nearly gone. We have to get used to life on the fringes now. That is, we have to get used to being the bad guys. Now, I don't mean that we actually are the bad guys and that we should make it a point to give offense to people or to cause outrage. Rather, what I mean is that we have to put love 
above our reputation. And we have to put compassion above our fear when it comes to sharing the gospel. Jesus knew that the world would not receive him, yet he came anyway. And of course, it's unlikely that any of us will provoke the world to such an extent that we'll be put to death like our Lord was. However, we do need to be prepared to be misrepresented in the workplace to be slandered by our families, to be looked down on by our friends when we are spreading the gospel. It takes love to reach the lost. A love that is greater than the social repercussions. A love that is greater than the fear of, well, what will people think of me? What will happen at my workplace? What's going to happen among my family? It takes love. And remember, I'm talking about the gospel. I'm talking about evangelization, not whatever our pet issues are. We don't have any trouble stirring the pot when it comes to those things. But when it comes to sharing the gospel, we start shaking in our boots. Which leads to the second point. We need to see ourselves in our time and place as people who are under orders. Continuing on in John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, A slave is not greater than his master. Jesus has issued a command, and it's binding upon us, irrespective of our feelings, irrespective of our station of life, irrespective of wherever and however we find ourselves. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, I am under compulsion. And he says, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9.16. Now, we're not apostles, but a similar compulsion does lie upon us. It's not an option to be about the Father's business in spreading the good news of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not an option. And sometimes it's the sheer necessity, the demand that gives us the courage to enter in. It's not optional. And third, and lastly for this first section, it means that we need to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, Matthew 10, 16. Now listen, if if not only our message... But even the concept of evangelism is offensive these days, then we're going to have to work even harder to gain a hearing with people. There are a lot of landmines out there, and we have to avoid stepping on them. We are ambassadors of the gospel. And though we might be labeled as bad guys, we need to demonstrate, as much as it lies in our power, that the opposite is true. Peter, in his first epistle, which we read just from just a moment ago, he says that writing to actually a church in, in a very similar situation is what we'd find ourselves in. He says that it's God's will that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Yeah, we might be slandered. We might be labeled the bad guys, but God's will is that you'd prove them wrong by doing what is right. So, remember who you represent. 
So that's the first thing. Um, to have a confidence, a courage about the good news in these times. Now, the second overall point that I want to make revolves around the concept of evangelism as witness. There's a lot of ways that the scriptures talk about evangelism, but I think the primary metaphor or the primary example is that of witness. Now, it's important witnesses because, again, things that are happening in our culture. And we'll come to what it means to be a witness shortly, but I just want to take a quick look again about why that has become so needful. Now, remember, in our culture, there's no universal truth. And that means truth is merely local. It's not discovered, as in it's actually out there, but it's invented. And when it comes to religion, that sort of leads to, and I'm sure you've heard this, all religions are the same thing take. That's what that leads to. For instance, you sort of hear a lot that we're all worshiping the same God. You know, we're all looking at the same thing. The only difference is that we're approaching it from different perspectives. Have you guys heard the famous analogy of the blind man and the blind men and the elephant? Well, there's several blind, blind men, um, and they happen uh, upon an elephant that for some reason just allows them to touch it and handle it. So the first blind man handling the elephant's trunk says, uh, whatever this creature is, it's long and flexible. It's something like a snake. And then the second blind man, he's feeling the elephant's leg, and he says, no, 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 you guys got it all wrong. It's like a, it's like a tree trunk. This is a different kind of animal. And then the third blind man, he's touching the elephant's side. He says, you're both wrong. This creature is large and flat. Now, never mind how unlikely that scenario is. The point is clear, and it's that each blind man could only feel part of the elephant, and none of them could envision the entire elephant. In the same way, the religions of the world each have a grasp on part of the truth, but none can see the whole. Right? So you have each religion looking at it from its own perspective. It's a matter of context and culture. So you also hear this, right? If you um, are, uh, well, whatever. You also hear this as well, that, you know, it, it, it all depends upon your culture. So someone would say, well, the only reason you're a Christian is because you grew up in Bible Belt, USA. But if you'd grown up in China, you'd be a Buddhist. Or if you'd grown up in India, you'd be a Hindu. Or if you'd grown up in the Middle East, you'd be a Muslim. But that's okay because you're a product of your context, so the logic goes, because no one can see the whole elephant, everyone needs to accept the incompleteness of their own vision, and they need to tolerate the vision of others. So it goes like this. Your grasp of reality as a Christian is no better than your Hindu neighbor's, so stop, stop trying to evangelize him and accept the validity of his religion. Right? Tolerate it. Don't evangelize you. We're all sort of in this together. So once again, do you see how that makes sharing the gospel in our society risky business? Again, critics would say, first thing, uh, would, would say three things. The first is that claiming to have universal truth is simply prideful. Now in the conversations that I've had, 
specifically with people of my generation and younger, this is always the sore spot. To most people who live in this environment, it appears like we are arrogant. It appears like we're deluded into thinking that we know the one true way. It's just prideful to them. The second is that claiming to have universal truth is inherently oppressive. What it does is deny the validity of other religions and it imposes our truth on other cultures and peoples and languages. Which leads to the third critique. Claiming to have universal truth is ultimately about power and control. In other words, the truth is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Because I have the truth, I can use it to control you, to make you see and do things my way. And because I have the truth, I can get from you what I want. So, what do we say to these critiques? Because again, they're out there, and any time that you're going to evangelize, you'll run into them in one form or another. So the first thing that we need to do is realize that, in fact, there is some truth to what's being said. It's true that oftentimes the truth doesn't make us humble but prideful. The attitude is something like, I have the truth, you don't, so you need to shut up and listen to me. Now it's also true that we claim to know more than we actually do. We are to have a proper confidence in the gospel, but beyond that, There's so much more that God hasn't revealed to us. We don't have the answer to every question, nor do we have the wisdom to discern every mystery. God does, but that's his business. In addition, it's also true that our evangelism, particularly in past centuries, has been oppressive. Look no further than our very home. When the Spanish conquistadors rode in to convert the Native Americans, not through their own free will, but through forced marriage in the edge of the sword. And what were they converted to? In most cases, it was not to Jesus, but it was to being Spanish. Or in more distant lands, the British Empire took a similar tact as it colonized much of Africa and East Asia. Again, it was less about Jesus, and it was more about cultural takeover. Now that said, there are wrong ways of responding to these facts. So some have sort of looked at the situation and they said, well, we should drop evangelism altogether with its call to repentance and conversion. And instead, here's the sort of hot button topic of, uh, of evangelism today. It's called dialogue. Now the goal of dialogue is not to convert the other person, but it's to enrich our own faith in the process. Self-conversion is the word that they use. So in dialogue with someone of a different faith or of no faith, the goal is to have my own faith refined, to have it expanded, to have it challenged. Now dialogue is fine, I guess, right? It's like, I guess that's, you don't have to contest it, but it can't replace evangelism. And that's where witness comes in. As we noted, the people in your workplace, the people even in your wider family, even your friends who are not believers, are inherently suspicious of evangelism. They think that you're trying to control them. And they hear 
this message, and they think that you just want to push your way on them. Right? That you're not playing by the rules and you just want to control them. But of course, and we know, that's not what evangelism is. Evangelism is about witness. Now, what is a witness? A witness is not a prosecutor who takes up a case against someone. A witness is not a lawyer who tries to convince the jury by his rhetorical power. And neither is a witness the judge who delivers the final verdict. A witness is someone who bears testimony to what they have experienced. We're not telling the world, you need to become like us. That's a poor message indeed. Instead, what we're telling the world, our neighbors who are inherently suspicious of this message and what we have to bring, we're, not, we're telling them, behold, like John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John chapter 1, verse 29. Our business is not to impose on people. It's not to bend them to our will. Our business as a witness is to set forth the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as clearly and as compellingly as possible. It's to bear witness to the remarkable beauty and glory of the gospel. There's that awesome passage in Galatians. It's almost just a throwaway note, Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says, Galatians, who bewitched you? Meaning, who, who, who pulled this on you because they had left the gospel? He says, who did this to you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Paul says, in his preaching, that's what he did. He laid out Jesus before them. Like, like, a, like a movie screen, publicly portrayed as crucified. And that's what Paul's getting at in another instance when he reminds the Corinthians that his preaching to them was not in superiority of speech, nor was it in persuasive words of wisdom. Paul refused all the tactics that the orators of his day used. Emotional manipulation, right, through flowery and... Uh, and eloquent speech. He refused intellectual manipulation, sleight of hand. And instead, he told the Corinthians, I came to you guys in weakness and in fear. And he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we're bearing witness to. We're witnesses, not prosecutors or judges or lawyers. We're always pointing away from ourselves and just pointing toward Jesus dead and risen. We're saying, look, I don't want anything from you. I'm not trying to control you. I'm saying, look at Jesus. See what he's done. It's a non-sort of coercive message. And that has to be the leading edge of evangelism in our day because of how suspicious people are of it. Just look at Jesus. I plead with you. See who he is and what he's done. And our last point, we'll wrap it up with this is to recover the gospel as truth and not as preference. Now, this might be, of all the points, the sort of hardest to grasp. Um, so I'll do my best, but just hang with me. Again, our society denies that there's universal truth in every realm except one realm, and that's the realm of science. So the only kind of facts that we accept as a people are scientific facts. Everything else is a matter of interpretation. 
right? It's a matter of your perspective. Now, scholars call this the fact-value distinction. So, on the one hand, there are facts, and that's the business of science. And on the other hand, there's values, and that's the business of religion, philosophy, and ethics. So these facts are universally binding on everyone, but values are inherently subjective. So the facts are the facts, but there are such things as personal values. There's things as cultural values, or family values, or business values, or interpersonal values. So you see, facts are facts, and then there's a bunch of different kind of values. And when facts and values are split apart, guess where the gospel falls? On what side of that? It falls into the value category. And the gospel is no longer seen, is, or rather, the gospel is no longer a matter of whether or not it's true. It's just a matter of preference. Does the gospel work for me? Do I find it meaningful? Is it authentic to who I really am? So the criteria by which we judge a religion has fundamentally changed. We're not supposed to look for the one right way. Remember, there is no right way. Rather, we're supposed to look for whatever works best for us. So it's not either or, right? You can take this religion or that religion, this worldview or that worldview, but you can have both. It's both and. Your, your, your job is to find a mix that works good for you. So oftentimes this looks like, and, and, and I know that you know this in your own life and in your own family, you've seen this thing played out. Oftentimes what this looks like is a person who has a Christian background. Maybe they grew up in church and they still hold to certain Christian teachings, but they also take astrology seriously. Or they practice Buddhist meditation or some other New Age kind of religious phenomenon. And, you know, sometimes they also listen to sermon podcasts. One author calls this sort of approach to faith a bespoke religion, which is to say that it's a tailor-made or made-to-order religion. So in our day, someone chooses religion like they choose a new outfit or some new gear at the store. You sort of try it on and you test it out. Does it fit? You know, does it serve the purposes that you want it to? Do you like it? And of course, evangelism is often framed in those terms. Jesus is another product to be marketed. He is given to people on the basis of their consumer profile. Are you depressed? Well, he can make you happy. Is your marriage going down the tubes? Well, he can restore it. Whatever you're looking for, he can provide it. That's one option, or the other is that the gospel is just turned into one option among many. You know, one picks up Christianity like they take up running or crafting or whatever they might do in their spare time. And the problem here is that the gospel is domesticated. It's removed from the sphere of truth, which concerns every human person, and it's safely placed in the realm of values. It's a matter of personal and private significance, and it loses its power to transform. So, yeah, I'm a Christian, but it's something that works for me, you know. I mean, I like it, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to work for everyone. There are other paths, and there are different options that you take, but this is just the one that I've found, and maybe you should try it out. Now, it's our job, and let's end here. It's our job to throw a big, massive 
rock into the middle of that system. I've tried to make this point so many times, and I I hope I'm getting it across. We're not content to place Jesus in the consumer-slash-religious pantheon alongside other goods and other gospels. Instead, Jesus is a rock that we're casting into the middle of that neat and tidy system. And we are bringing it to a halt with the inconvenient truth of the gospel. Which leads us to the passage that we read earlier to open. Peter, he speaks about Jesus in verse 4 of chapter 2 as a living stone. Now it's a metaphor, Jesus as a stone, that's based on other passages of scripture. Jesus is also the cornerstone, Peter says, drawing on the Psalms and on Isaiah. Now in the ancient world, you guys know, the cornerstone was the most important aspect of the building. So whoever the architect was, he would go out to the quarry and they would fashion the perfect cornerstone. It had to have the exact right angle because you would build everything based off the line that that cornerstone set. It determined the position of the entire structure. So Jesus, or Peter says that Jesus is the cornerstone. But then just a little bit further on, he also says that Jesus is a stumbling stone. You're walking wherever in your backyard and you trip over a stone and fall over. So for some, Peter says, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one by which everything else is measured and determined. And for others... He is a stumbling stone that causes people to fall. Listen, in the end, it's one or the other. Jesus can't be placed into a list of options, of lifestyle choices, of different things you could do with your life. It's one or the other. God will not allow his son Jesus to be merely another option. Rather, he can be, in the end, only one of two things the very foundation upon which our lives are built, that when the rain and the storm and the wind comes, will stand, or he can be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is that living stone that God heaves down into the midst of human history, into the midst of every individual life. And his presence disrupts and challenges everything. It's like a massive boulder in the middle of our lives that we can't ignore. Either we build on it or we stumble over it. Everything now has to work around him. And that's how it must be. Because God has taken that man who was crucified, the stone which the builders rejected, and made him the chief cornerstone in the temple. And our gospel must reflect this. It's one or the other, the cornerstone or the stumbling stone, the rock of offense. And to us, he's the cornerstone. He's the one whose body and blood were broken and shed for us that we might have life, that we too might become a living stone, that we might be built up upon his life. So I want to invite you now to come receive the elements of the Lord's Supper Uh, to take them back to your places, and uh, I'll lead us in celebration in just one moment.